I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, I want to begin tonight with a big word. And the big word is uh, prolegomena. Uh, it is a word that means that which must be said before anything else is said. That's what it means. So if you were to go to a Baptist college or a seminary and you were to take a class in theology or in doctrine, the first couple of weeks would be prolegomena. It would be those things that need to be said before anything else can be said. Those things that lay the foundation for our learning the truth about who God is and how God operates in the world. Uh, if you were going to be a mechanic, uh, you would need to have some knowledge of how a car works. You would need to know something about how the engine in the car functions. Uh, you just couldn't go to work on a car and say, I'll figure it out as I go along. That would be just a mess, right? You have to have some understanding of the components of an engine so that when you begin to take it apart, you'll have some understanding of how it works so you can put it back together. You would have to have prolegomena. You would have to have things that you would need to know before you entered the field of uh, being a mechanic. Well, it's true in theology as well. And the prolegomena that we've been dealing with, and that's all we've been do dealing with in our uh, opening study of Doctrines for Living, uh, the prolegomena that's necessary for us to talk about and study uh, who God is and how God works are these two things. Number one, God wants you to know him. And so, God makes himself known. That's very important. Because God is God. And had God decided from eternity past that he didn't want anybody to know him, he wanted to remain the infinite mystery, then what would happen? Nobody would know God. Now, we assume, because of uh, what we've learned throughout time and history, that God wants to be known. God desires that every person in this room know him. And God desires far more than that. He desires that we know him to the fullest extent possible. God is not hiding from us. So God makes himself known. In order to know God... We have to uh, receive what he has given us so that we can know him. We don't start with us and move to God. We start from God, and we assume, we assume that God has made himself known. And what we discover from the Bible is that God has made himself known in three ways. He's made himself known, first of all, in the world. God created the world and everything in it as a testimony 
to him being the creator. God has made himself known, secondly, in our conscience. Every human being has a sense of someone beyond them that is greater than they are. Now, they may not uh, immediately call that person God, but every human being, even the smallest child, has some kind of sense of there being a being that is beyond them that's bigger than they are to whom they are accountable. Why do you think a child who does something wrong and knows that they're going to get in trouble for doing wrong, when their mom or dad asks them, did you do that, what do they typically do? We call it lying. (laughs) Now, why do they do that? Because they're natural-born liars? No. Because they know there's this standard that is beyond them to which they're accountable, and they know that that standard is held by their parents, and they don't want to receive the kind of punishment that they would receive for doing whatever it is that they did. Thirdly, God makes himself known in his word. Now, that is the way specifically, precisely, that we know God. You can look at the world and you can know there is a God. There is a great being that's bigger than we are. You can listen to your conscience and know that there is a standard for life, and you may not be able to explain it, but you know there is one. But you don't know what kind of God God is until you read the Bible. So God has given us his word so that we can know him. God speaks to us specifically and precisely and, I believe, plainly in and through his word. So the first thing that we have to establish when we come to the study of theology is that we believe that God wants us to know him, so he made himself known. Here's the second thing. We believe that God has made himself known in the Bible, through the Bible. The Bible is, and you will be confused all of your life, about who God is and how God works if you don't get clear in your mind that the Bible is the absolute truth of God. you got to settle that. That it's the inerrant, infallible, fully sufficient Word of God. You have doubts about that at any level, you will be confused about who God is. Because what we believe is that God made Himself known specifically in His Word so that when the Bible speaks, God is speaking. So when we, when we adopt that assumption, that is an assumption that we adopt when we come to the study of theology, we assume that everything we need to know about God, we find in the Bible. Everything we need to know about God, we find in the Bible. The Bible is the exhaustive explanation. Now be careful here. It's the exhaustive explanation, not of God, but all that God wants us to know about God. We will never know everything there is to know about God. In fact, I believe that one of the joys of heaven is that when we get to heaven, we will just begin to grow really fully and perfectly in the knowledge of God. I think when we get to the end of eternity, for which there is no end, Throughout eternity, we'll keep growing in our knowledge of God. That's how big God is. That's how vast God is. That's how glorious and great 
God is. So when we come to the Bible, to examine the Bible, there are, there are three or four things that we must say about the Bible. One, we must look at its inspiration. We've already done that. All Scripture is what? It's breathed out by God. All Scripture. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, every bit of it comes directly from God to us through the, through, by way of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, after inspiration, God gives us the Bible as his holy word is inerrancy. Inerrancy means the Bible does not have any mistakes. Zero. It does not... You know, I've never known how to say this word. It does not ear. It does not err. Ear err. I, I don't know which is correct, but it doesn't err. It, it doesn't. There are no mistakes at all in the Bible. It is the inerrant word of God. It is infallible. That's what we're going to begin talking about is infallibility. That means that the Bible cannot have mistakes. Now, let me ask you a question. Why can't the Bible have mistakes? Why? Yes. If the ultimate author of Scripture is God, to say that the Bible could have mistakes is to say that God could make a mistake. Right? So there are no errors in the Bible because the ultimate author of the Bible is God. And then the other thing we're going to deal with tonight is sufficiency. And it, can, it includes several areas. So let's look, first of all, at infallibility. That is, the Bible does not err or ear. Ear? Let's go with ear. Okay. There are two views of infallibility. I'm gonna, they're up on the screen, you can see them. One of them is Roman Catholic. Now, I'm going to be hard on Roman Catholics. I just need you to know that. I am going to be, uh, because I think we really don't think about what Roman Catholics really believe and teach. The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That's one view. The Bible is the only infallible rule when it speaks of faith and practice. One of those is the conservative evangelical position of the church from the third century to the present. The other is the view, has been the view of the Roman Catholic Church since its origin in the fourth and fifth century. Which is which? The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That's our view. We turn to the Bible for everything we need to know about who God is and how God works. The second view is the liberal view and the Roman Catholic view. The Bible is the only infallible rule when it speaks of faith and practice. Now, in the Roman Catholic view and in the liberal view, who gets to decide when the Bible's talking about faith and practice and when it's talking about something else? Who gets to decide that? Somebody's got to decide that. Huh? Well, yeah, at the Roman Catholic level, that is right. Uh, the the, the uh, Pope and the uh, 
magisterium of the church. The leaders of the Roman church decide that. They decide where the Bible is talking about faith and practice and where it isn't. In liberal circles among Protestants, who decides that? We do. We become lords over Scripture. We become the arbiters of what Scripture says, and we will say about uh, certain things, the Bible, can, the Bible does not address that. So that's why you have so many liberals who are evolutionists, and they see nothing wrong with being evolutionists. Why? Because they say that the account of creation in Genesis 1 is not science, and it says nothing to us about how God created the world or who created the world. It's just a myth or a legend or a story. It's not actual history. So what they're arguing is that you can be a full-fledged Christian and believe fully in evolution because it has that account in Genesis has nothing to do with faith and practice. Infallibility requires that you and I are able to judge the Bible by two critical standards. One is the, the law of non-contradiction. There are no contradictions in the Bible. So let me, let me say this to you. If you find in the Bible what you think is a contradiction, who's wrong, you or the Bible? <laughs> you know, we got, that's simple stuff. We've got to get that in our head. I found a contradiction. No, you didn't. Uh, the law of non-contradiction, if this is the inerrant, infallible word of God, is that the word of God is pure and perfect in every way. The law of God is perfect, David writes in Psalm 19. It revives the soul. It is perfect. There are no contradictions. There are paradoxes in the Bible, which is a different thing. The other thing is that we believe in the law of unity, that there is one story told through 66 books, and that one story from Genesis to Revelation is without contradiction. One story. The Bible is 66 books, but it's actually how many? One. And God is over thousands of years revealing himself to us in this one marvelous book. Now, let's do some homework here on this issue. Let's look at some text. Go to Matthew 5. <clears throat> We're just going to... Look at some of these, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching here. This is what he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, whenever you see in the Bible that phrase, the law or the prophets, what's the shorthand? What's the shorthand for this phrase? Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament or the Old Covenant writings. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Now, the word for fulfill here means to bring to completion. That's what the word means. To bring to completion. So when you have the Old Testament, like water being poured in a glass, how much of the glass is full when all you've got is the Old Testament? You've got half a glass. 
If all you've got is the New Testament, what do you have? Half a glass. You've got to have both Testaments, like water and a glass, and Jesus comes to bring fullness to both because both the Old Testament and the New Testament find their focus in Jesus. For truly I say to you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota or a dot, smallest yota, smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, dot, the smallest marking in the Hebrew uh, characters, the Hebrew alphabet. So, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota or a dot will pass from the law until all it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you want to know what Jesus is talking about here, what, what's he talking about when he, when he says you've got to have your righteousness exceeding the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, what's he talking about? Well, just read the next paragraph. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, had a very moralistic, legalistic religion. It was external. What does it mean to belong to God? It means that I keep the law and I'm a morally decent person. That's what it means to the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus doesn't come to to bring us into conformity to external rules. Where is the focus of Jesus when he comes to us? It's not on us obeying external rules, what does he come to change? He changes our heart. He changes us from the inside out. So that you have someone who uh, is, is, is angry, and that anger comes out in a violent kind of rage. What is the problem? What's the problem with that person? Do they need to go to anger management school? No. Because anger management school is going to teach them behavioral therapy that can change their behavior. It will not last. It never does last. It does not work. Because Jesus has come to change the heart. And the change that Jesus brings to which the Bible points throughout is a change of heart. Go to Psalm 19. Again, this is... It's all over the Bible where the Bible bears witness to the absolute infallibility of the Word of God. Look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, again referring to the Scripture, the testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed. Warned in keeping them, 
there is great reward. We delight in the Word of God and we hunger for the Word of God as the people of God because the only place we find the truth of God that changes our lives is in Scripture. John 17, 17, I've already referred to it in the prayer. Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Go to John 10. You know Luke 24 when the two came and walked with Jesus, and Jesus began with Moses, and from Moses he taught them everything in the Scriptures about himself. This passage in John 10 is really uh, one of the most striking passages about infallibility, and it comes from Jesus. John 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and this is the phrase that shook me quite a few years back when I understood something about what Jesus was saying. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, this is Jesus talking, and he's talking about Scripture. And what does he say? Scripture cannot be broken. Now, he's actually referring here to a very, very obscure text in the Psalms to which almost nobody ever called attention. You know what Jesus is saying? There is not one single detail in Scripture that can be ignored. Why? Because all of it, all of it in its entirety is the Word of God. Let me tell you one of the most dangerous things you will ever do as a believer. And that is to take a certain part of Scripture that you like and you focus your Christian life on living out of that part of Scripture. And not recognize that from Genesis to Revelation, it is all infallible. It is all God's word. And we want to know, as the children of God, all that the Bible teaches. That's why we give ourselves to reading the word of God, studying the word of God. Uh, This morning in my quiet time, uh, I was reading, as a part of my quiet time, I was reading Romans 10. Romans 10 has always been confusing to me, to be honest. I've never quite uh, understood Romans 10. And Romans 10 has been equated with certain forms of evangelism, and, and that's how I read Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And, and that is profoundly true. But what does it mean in Romans 10? I've asked that question hundreds of times. What does that mean in Romans 10? So this morning when I came to Romans 10, this is what I prayed. God, could you help me this morning? These, these were my words. Could you help me just this morning read Romans 10 as if I've never read it before? Because I realized I had some prejudices, some blinders. I knew I had them. And I could not see what was there in Romans 10 that I needed to see. I think that is important for us to know that sometimes we can make assumptions about what the Bible says that the Bible does not say at all. Infallibility is this. Here it is at the bottom. The witness of the Bible to itself. The Bible witnesses to itself throughout from Genesis to Revelation that it is the infallible. It does not err, does not err. The witness of Jesus to the Bible. Jesus points to the Bible as the Word of God and the witness of the history of the church to the Bible, pointing out that the Bible is infallible. Now, I want to show you this really quickly because I think this is important to you to, for you to see. When it comes to infallibility, there are two kinds of Scripture. And we could go on and on with this forever. B.B. Warfield was the first to see this in the modern era. There are Scriptures that are spoken of in the Bible as if they were God. And the second is that God is spoken of as if he were the Scriptures. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and then we'll go to Romans 9, verse 17. So first of all, we're going to Galatians chapter 3, verse number 8. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now you go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 14, and 15. This is God speaking. But the text begins, and the Scripture. So what's, what's happening here is what Scripture says is exactly what God says. Romans 9, verse 17. You find this kind of thing uh, throughout the Bible. It's, it's just there. It's undeniable. Romans 9, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, well, you go back and read Exodus. This is not Scripture saying this. This is God. This saying, this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, go over to Matthew chapter 19, and you'll see the other side of this. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. God is spoken of as if he were the Scriptures. Verse 1, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. 
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. So they're no longer two, but one, one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He's quoting scripture here from Genesis. But he is quoting that scripture as if this is what God says, because it is indeed what God says. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. You'll see another one of these. You can look up Hebrews 3, 7 later. But Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Scripture. Scripture is equated with the voice of God. Here's the bottom line. When you read Scripture, who's talking? God. And if you want to hear the voice of God, where do you go? There is no such thing as extra-biblical revelation beyond the Bible revelation. Why do you and I need extra-biblical revelation when we've got the Bible? We can hear and do hear the voice of God speaking clearly and consistently and very coherently in Scripture. Now, let's talk about sufficiency. So to talk about sufficiency, we need to talk first about the scope of biblical authority. We need to talk about what are the authoritative books, and so we need to talk about uh, this subject that is confusing to people, uh, the, the subject of canonicity. Don't let this word confuse you or concern you, because the word for canon is actually the word for reed cane. And you, we've all seen reed cane. Some of you handle reed cane, made syrup from reed cane. And you take up, you take up a piece of cane, and as you go down that cane, there's a notch here, and there's a notch here, and those pieces of cane were used for measurement in the time of the Bible. It was the way they measured uh, for what they were doing and building and other things, the cane or the canon became the standard for uh, measuring something. So here's the question. The question of the canon is, how do we know that we have the right books in the Bible? Now, you and I know what triggered a lot of this in recent times was the writing of and then the um, uh, release of the movie The Da Vinci Code. So people started asking, are there other books? Is God hiding something from us? Are there books that we do not know about? Well, what we've known from uh, at least the third or fourth century is the norm 
by which the church has measured uh, as the standard for what is authoritative is found in the 66 books of the Bible. It's called the norm without norm by which all other norms are normed. It is the absolute norm for our knowing that when we open the Bible and we read the Bible, we have the Word of God. The the Old Testament came into its full formation in that time between the Testaments before Jesus was born. The, The Hebrew Bible and then the translation of the Hebrew into Greek was fully formed and fashioned before you came to the time of Jesus. So when Jesus was born and he was growing up in the home of Joseph and Mary and he went to the synagogue and he was taught. Now this is very important. He wasn't taught the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a Protestant term. He was taught what? The Bible. The, the Hebrew, the, the Greek word uh, for the old, what we call the Old Testament is Biblios, from which we get Bible. It was also called the graphe or the writings. It was often called the agegraphe, the holy writings. And it was the Bible for every Jewish person. When, when Jesus was growing up in the home of Joseph and Mary, and he was taught at home, and then he went to the synagogue to be taught, he was taught the Bible. Well, what was the Bible? It's what we know as the Old Testament. Now, you just think about this. Jesus is being taught the word that he brought into being. He is reading that which is all about him. And he's learning it. Every Hebrew, every what we would call Jewish male, had to learn by memory Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, what didn't they have that we have? And our memories are horrible, right? You know, one of the commitments I made sitting on the pew this morning as we were being, as we were starting our worship is uh, um, these scriptures that we start, these, these monthly memory verses, they're intended for us together to memorize them. And you know what I got convicted about? There's no way I can ask you to memorize them if I'm not leading the way. My memory is so bad that 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 I'm going to have to work on that verse. I, I should not have to, but I'm going to have to work on it to memorize it. I want you to hold me to that so that I can say it just like an Awana person. They had to, they had what we don't have. They they had they didn't have all the distractions. Their memories were uh, much more workable and efficient than than ours are. Jesus talks about the Old Testament as the Word of God, Matthew 5, Luke 24. The New Testament writings began to emerge. So by the time you get to the time of Jesus, we have the what we call the Old Testament. It's in circulation. The New Testament writings start to emerge around the late 40s. And as I told you last week, the first book that was written in the New Testament, that's in our New Testament, book of James, written around A.D. 49. The last book of the New Testament was written uh, sometime before 100 A.D., probably the book of Revelation written during 
the reign of Domitian, the horrible emperor of Rome, uh, sometime around uh, 95. Turn to 1 Timothy 5. We'll just look at that one. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 20. This is one of those fascinating places uh, in the New Testament. Let the elders, verse 17, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For, you with me on verse 18? For the what? Says, and then he quotes this verse, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. You know where you find that? Not in the Old Testament. Where do you find it? In the Gospel of Luke. So what's, he, what's Paul doing here? He's quoting something that we have from Luke, and he's calling it what? Scripture. He's calling it the Word of God. He's quoting something that we have in the Gospels, and he's referring to it as the Word of God. Now, this is what happened in um, the second century. So all of the writings that we know as the Gospels and the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John and the book of Revelation, by near the end of the first century, uh, they are circulating. They're circulating in the churches. People at the churches are reading them and the churches are using them, and the churches are referring to them as Scripture. But they have not yet been put together into a collection. So the church began to, to uh, assess these writings that are circulating, and they began to assess them uh, by certain standards. And here are the uh, standards. I think I left something here. I missed one here. Okay, let me do this one first. They're in full circulation by the end of first century, but there were other books that were in circulation as well, other books that were written by other people. The Didache is a famous book. The Shepherd of Hermas, another. First Clement, writing to the church in Corinth. There were some books that were in circulation that were more accepted and used in the church than others. Hebrews... Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, didn't like Hebrews. Second Peter was another one. Second Peter has some strange uh, things in it. James, uh, because of the perceived conflict with Paul, Jude, and of course, Revelation. What happened is that in the early years of the second century, beyond the first century, there was a man in the church whose name was Marcion, and Marcion believed in a God of love only, no judgment no vengeance, no wrath. So Marcion put together his own Bible. Guess what it didn't have? No Old Testament. No Gospels. It just had the writings of Paul of which Marcion approved. And Marcion forced the church to get serious about deciding... Uh, what were the authoritative writings 
And the church looked at what was in circulation, and here is what they came up with. Number one, in order to be accepted, it had to be written by apostle, or it had to be closely associated with an apostle. Gospel of Mark, apostle? No. But where did Mark get most of his information? We know that he got most of his information from the apostle Peter. Matthew, we know. John, we know. Uh, Luke, we know. The second criterion was that these books were received by the church and the church was actually preaching and teaching these books and were applying them to their lives. Thirdly, they had to be compatible with the gospel. The center of the early church was the gospel, the preaching and teaching of the gospel. At this point, the, the one book that was still struggling was James And the one chapter, what we call chapters, they didn't have chapters and verses then, but what we call chapters, Hebrews 6. Why would Hebrews 6 be a problem for the early church? Because Hebrews 6, uh, something teaches that you can lose your salvation. I don't think it teaches that. So the books were assembled, the, the 27 that we have now, with some questions about James And Hebrews 6, and the church discussed these books, debated these books, and by the time we get to the end of the 4th century, uh, the church had decided that for for the life of the church, the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, 39 books, although they were not 39 then because what we call 1st and 2nd Chronicles were one book, 1st and 2nd Kings one book, 1st and 2nd Samuel one book. And the 27 books of the New Testament were the authoritative rule for the church. The church would be ruled by these books. Now, here is where Protestants and Roman Catholics have a huge division. Now, again, which do you think we believe and which do you think the Roman Catholic Church believes? One group believes that the canon, that is the 66 books of the Bible, is a fallible collection of infallible books. The other group believes that the Bible is an infallible collection of infallible books, which is us. Think about this. If the collection is infallible, think about this, who has authority over the Bible? No, if it's infallible, if if the collection of the books is infallible, that means there are no mistakes made, there are no errors made in the collection of the book, then the church gets to speak with authority both through the Bible and beyond the Bible. Remember the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church believes that the Bible is authoritative and what the church says is authoritative because the church is seen to be what? It's seen to be infallible. It's seen to be absolutely authoritative. So, again, when you talk to a Roman Catholic person and you say to them, show me in the Bible where purgatory is, what are they going to say to you? I don't have to. Because it doesn't matter that it's not in the Bible, because it is the teaching of the church. 
the church is infallible. So the Roman Catholic Church sees that they were infallible in the collection of these infallible books. What we say is that God used human beings, fallible human beings, to write his word. And he used fallible human beings to bring together the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. Infallibility doesn't belong to the church. There is no infallible church. Infallibility doesn't belong to the preacher. There is no infallible preacher. Infallibility doesn't belong to those who teach the Word of God. There are no infallible teachers. There's only one thing that's infallible. God himself is infallible, and he has revealed himself as an infallible God in the 66 books of the Bible that are absolutely infallible. I believe if we believe that with all of our heart, it would drive us to the Bible day by day by day by day because we want to hear what it says. And we want to know what it says because it is so important. Let me just stop right here and see if you have any questions or comments or additions because we're going to talk about uh, sufficiency next. We're almost done with this part of our study And we're going to talk about sufficiency because sufficiency is is so important, so critical. And we we are, uh, if I can just say this to you, you and I are living in a time when the sufficiency of Scripture is more under attack. Uh, among conservative evangelicals than I've seen in the last 30 years. So we need to be clear about when we say that Scripture is sufficient, we need to be clear about what we mean, and we need to be clear that we're going to stand on the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. This morning when I I mentioned the 2,000 Uh, pastors in England that were cast out of their churches on a single Sunday. I think you're living in Wawa land if you think that could not happen in the United States of America in coming years. I I think that is a distinct possibility if uh, churches do not compromise uh, our commitments and particularly our commitments to the sufficiency of Scripture. Father, we uh, thank you for this night, this wonderful day you've given us. It's uh, been a beautiful day to be able to gather on this Lord's Day, to worship together, study your word together, really just to be together. And we thank you for it, and we thank you for the time uh, that you've given us today. Now, bless our week. I pray that... uh, you would watch over us as we go about our week and that, that you would give us wisdom in decisions we have to make and directions we go, things that we will be facing during this week. And guide us, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, grow us. 
Give us opportunities during this coming week to be a witness for you. And we thank you. Thank you for your great love for us and kindness toward us. Thank you that you have saved us by your grace and mercy and that day by day we live as dependent, as children who are dependent on your goodness and on your grace and on your mercy. And that you do not withhold it. That you indeed are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You are the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You have birthed us as your children by the word of truth. And you have brought us forth and put us in this world as a kind of first fruits of your creatures who are to be a light in the darkness and who are to show people how to be faithful to Jesus when everything around us is falling apart. So help us to do that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.